If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We're going to continue our study of this book. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Chapter 2 this morning. Verses 1 through 18. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and advanced her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made her people known or her kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the term came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king, In this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening. And she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. 
Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, even in the darkness of it, may we see the light of your grace and providence. That though power was leveraged in horrible ways, Lord, you're bringing about redemption. In short, Lord, may we see Jesus in this passage. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we began our study of the book of Esther. We noticed that it's an odd book in a peculiar way for scripture. Do you remember that oddity? The name of God. Or even titles for God are not to be found in Esther. Yet we also noted that we're meant to see the great irony that though his name is not mentioned and though his titles aren't proclaimed here, God is at work everywhere. We clearly see his hand at work in the text that we just read. God is doing something. Last week we saw the grandeur of Ahasuerus, this vast kingdom of 127 provinces ranging from India to Ethiopia. He's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, which they took over. His grandfather took over when he defeated the Babylonian Empire. Xerxes rules Israel and Judah as part of his kingdom in addition to the huge kingdom and the vast empire that we that we saw that was also an opulent amount of wealth this guy had tons of money couches made of silver and gold the text seemed to focus in for us and say hey not only is this guy powerful and his kingdom is vast he's also incredibly wealthy I don't know what your couch is made of, but I doubt anyone here has a couch made of gold. So the king loved to display his wealth and and brag about his power, and he did so by throwing this lavish party, 187 days worth, and it was a raucous affair. The king decreed, there is no decree about drinking. So drunkenness was the name of the game. Last week, we also noticed that with all this opulence and all this grandeur of the king, that it was hollow. When he had gotten drunk and his soul was merry, he sent for Vashti, his queen. He wanted to display her as an object. And do you remember what she said? No, I'm not coming to you. 
She, she probably rightly knew that this was a drunken, riotous affair, and she wanted nothing to do with it. We're not told her motives. We're just told that she says no to power. And the king doesn't like it. And so the king makes this decree, this um, declarative statement, throughout the land, Vashti can never come back to me. And we saw irony in that, because Vashti just said no. And now the king is saying, you're not going to come before me. And all of this, we see the scripture giving us some answers to some profound questions that all of us go through. What is it like to live life feeling like God is not at work? What should we think in our day-to-day life when we don't see God doing anything? And we're longing for various things, but it doesn't appear that God is, is answering the longings of our heart. What do we make of the world when we believe that God isn't matching up with our desires for the present experience? That's what Esther's about. Today we don't see those questions going away. We see them getting even bigger. Not only does it seem that God is silent, but in our text today we see the situation is not morally neutral. The situation in Esther 2 is morally bankrupt. In the absence of the queen, the king will use his power and position to build another harem. From this harem, he's going to select a new queen for his empire. However, the way this is done is utterly vile. We're not meant to be shielded from this reality. We're meant to see it. We just read this long text about the way that the king goes about doing this. We're not meant to overlook the immorality of the the abuse of power being inflicted here. We're meant to see it. We're meant to see the scriptural lesson that God uses all things. Even the actions of a wicked and morally corrupt and bankrupt king to accomplish his good purposes. God is good. That's one of the huge lessons we find in Esther. Some of the religious opinions on the book of Esther have not always been good ones. Some view Esther as kind of the the scriptural version of like a Disney princess movie. That's a bad assessment. It's not a princess movie. There's some bad things going on in the text, and we're meant to see them. We're not meant to skip over them. Yes, it doesn't do a lot for us spelling out all of Esther's motives, but it doesn't have to. This is a tale of power, abuse, something we would call human trafficking. Esther invites us to see men being predatory against women, women being utterly and horribly objectified and used for power's own ends. It's a story that sometimes reveals that fear is more powerful than faith. Last week we said because of the irony we're meant to laugh at the king. 
It has humor, no doubt. I think we are meant in various places throughout Esther to laugh. However, it's also uncomfortable as we read today because in this we see abduction for the purpose of sexual exploitation and abuse. That there's also good news and hope for the people of God going on at the same time. The lesson is a little harder. It's, it's the same lesson as last week, only this week it's advanced even more. Where is God when he appears silent? We know that he is there, he is moving. Today it's where is God when all things seem horrible? And wickedness and vile is everywhere. And listen, this larger, the larger picture for us as a congregation is exactly what Howard prayed earlier. The, the world around us has seemed to, to go crazy. Like, what is going on? You could say the same thing in, in Esther. You could see the same realities going on. What in the world is going on? We're meant to see hope that though things are terrible, though there are vile things taking place, God is at work to save his people. Like last week, we'll explore the various movements of this chapter through the lens of the characters, and then we'll take some time to glean some lessons from God's word. First, the king in verses 1 through 4. We remember from last week that the king had these huge parties, the culmination of the uh, seven days of feasting. It was a raucous affair. Again, lots of drinking. Then after seven days, the king called for Vashti, his queen, likely full of wisdom. Again, we're not given her motives. She refuses. That's where our text picks up. All of that has gone down. Um, the king has sent out his royal decree. Vashti is never again to come before me, the king. Everybody knows who's boss. Notice verse 1. After these things, when the anger of the king, I, I swear us, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. When you hear the word remembered in the Bible, it's not like you and me remembering to pick up the dry cleaning. It's not like I remember to set my alarm clock. It's not that kind of remember. Remember in Scripture is this active reality. We see it often used of God when He remembers His people in slavery down, down in Egypt in bondage. God remembers His people. That is a memory atta attached to affection and action. That's what it's saying here about the king with the king is having regrets. He was rash, he was drunk, and he lost his queen. He did not come off looking good. He's now sober and finds himself without his wife, and he's made a foolish decree. Ironically, this text makes it sound like he wants her back, but because of his own foolish words, he can't have her. And then the king's advisors devise this evil plan. Verse 2, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
This is the world in which our story takes place. The king isn't looking for love. The king isn't looking for a soulmate. The king isn't looking for someone to be by his side as, a, as one to, to build him up. Beautiful, young virgins. So they hatch this plot, this plan. Go take from all the kingdom and even set up people in all your various kingdoms that their sole task is to locate these people and ship them here. It's really hard to fathom. They were essentially being forced into sex slavery. The young women would be taken from their home and their family and brought to the citadel in Susa. There they would be beautified for a long period of time while being prepared and paraded before the king. They would be forced to spend a night with the king and then taken to another place, another house with other women. And here's what makes it so much worse. There they would be a concubine. So if the king does not select you as queen, you are never allowed to marry. You're never allowed to have children. This is your lot. One night with the king, and then you're a concubine for life. It's a terrible reality. All of this plan was hatched in order to overcome the king's insecurity in light of his rash decision with Vashti. Rather than take ownership of this evil plot, and, and say, no, we're not going to do that. It's morally wrong. Verse 4 tells us, this pleased the king. And he did so. Here's the plot, king. Okay, sounds great. Do it. We'll have more applications later, but just to, to stop here and make a point, this isn't some, just some ancient practice that we read about that's distant from us. This happens in our own community. Human trafficking, sex slavery. If you've never heard of it, look up Purchased Not For Sale. It's connected to the hub. It's a local ministry in our town. It's set up to deal with this very issue. Their website says this, Rescue Relationship Recovery and Resources to Women and Children Experiencing Sexual Exploitation and Sex Trafficking. While we might be shocked that the king would allow such a plot, we need to be reminded that this evil exists, not just out there, but in our community, in our day, and all around the world. I would say this is one of the, the biggest evils in our world. There's never been more people, humans, being trafficked than there are today. Texts like this one before us today remind us that God sees, He knows, He cares. He even leverages power to, to bring light, to shine light into the darkness and hope to the hopeless. He loves His people and He is going to save them even through the, the evil plots of an evil empire. 
So we've seen the character of the king and his plan now to introduce new characters, Mordecai and Esther, from the halls of power and this evil plot, we come to the home of a Jew named Mordecai. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. To us, this verse may sound utterly ordinary. Here's a man who lives in Susa, the Persian capital, and he lives in the citadel. He's in the heart of town. This is the city center. However, we're told that he's Jewish. A Jewish reader would be like, hey, stop the presses. Why is a, a Jew living in the heart of the Persian capital? This would sound awful. Mordecai and Esther are exiles. They belong in Israel. Yet here they are in Susa, far away from Israel, in western Iran. Mordecai was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, the whole, the whole brother of Joseph and youngest of Jacob's sons. Mordecai was a distant relative of King Saul, who was also of the tribe of Benjamin. His ancestors had been carried off into exile in Babylon. Mordecai had only ever known life in exile. It defined his existence. That was Mordecai and Esther, but this was not their true home. Let me ask you to just think about some questions. What would it be like to live in such an unjust and prideful leader? When you know you have a home... What, what would it be like to live like that? What, what would it have been like to live in a society where everyone worshipped false gods and valued entertainment above any other enterprise? What would that be like? What would it have been like for Mordecai and Esther, the people of God, to live in a society that routinely sexually exploits others? I don't think we have to use our imagination to consider what it's like to be a, a person in exile. I think a lot of what they must have been processing, ways that they process their life, are, that's the way that you and I try to process our lives today. I don't think it's a stretch. We see many of these same conditions in our world. Was it wrong then, let me ask you, for Mordecai and Esther to pursue their life in exile? Do you remember God's word to Jeremiah before the Babylonian exile? He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare and find your welfare. It's not wrong for Mordecai to... To live and do commerce as an exile. It's not wrong. God's instructions allowed for his people to thrive in exile. I think the same is true for us. 
The same commission rolls down to you and I. You're not wrong to have a job and be good at it, though you live as an exile. You're not wrong to invest in a home and build it. Do it. You're not wrong to plant gardens and, and water them and eat of their produce. Great. Plant trees. And planting trees is not a short enterprise. That's a, that's a long, long process. You, exiled people of God, plant trees in Babylon. Another reality that, that stands out here is his identity is called a Jew, but his name is Mordecai. It's another form of the Babylonian Marduk, which was one of their false gods. He, in other words, he had two identities. The author wants us to know he lives in light of his Jewish identity or he wouldn't be marked as such. But he also has a name reflecting the gods of the, the pagan world in which he lived. In other words, Mordecai had two identities. This is very common with exiles. The same thing happened with Daniel and his friends. Right? They have this Jewish identity, this Jewish worldview. Suddenly in exile, they're given whole new names, whole new identities in exile. Similarly, when we meet Esther, the cousin of Mordecai, who was taken into his care as an orphan, the daughter of his uncle, the text says that she also has a dual identity. Verse 7 gives us this de detail. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. For she had neither father nor mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, Hadassah. The Hebrew means myrtle, fragrant and beautiful plant that grows up tree-like. And Esther, her Persian name, which would likely be linked to another false god, the god of Ishtar, a fertility god of Babylon and Persia. The point is that living in exile for them likely meant two identities. Two identities. One to live and work and function in the society in which they lived. And the other devoted to God. Again, their Jewish identity was not completely lost. Now in our story, these two plot lines come crashing together. The power of the king and his plot to find a new queen, and Mordecai and Esther, verses 9 and 10, and the young, the young woman pleased him and won his favors, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her among the young women to the best place in the harem. And she continues to hide her Jewish identity. Of course, the text tells us, and as soon as we read of her beauty, we know it's coming. We're like, uh-oh, the king has this wicked plot. Oh no, it's made worse. Esther, this orphan being raised by Mordecai, she's going to be taken. And you're right. It's terrible. Esther pleased him. Hegai, that is... This servant, literally, she is good in his sight. Notice the superficiality of all of this. 
appearances, outward appearances from the king's palace to this parade of the harem before him. Everything is rooted in appearances. Listen, if you, if you feel like you live in exile and that, that that is all around you, it's because that's exactly what our world is like. Everything is rooted in this superficial reality of outward appearances. And we, we should utterly think of that in contrast to who God is and what he's about. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. Next, we should note that Esther has not made it known that she's a Jew. This was the plan that Mordecai plotted. All this will become very important as our story moves along. I want to point it out just to say, look how silently, how quietly God is working to save his people. It's a quiet plan. Terrible things are going on, and God is plotting and planning and working through his providence to save his people. The next part of the story is shocking and terrible in verse 12. Now, when the turn for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, this is what the harem was for. Go get all the beautiful women, house them together, parade them in front of the king, he'll pick one, one a night. And they go in, and they're not going in to play Connect Four. They're not going in to enjoy pleasant conversation. They're going in to be physically assaulted by the king until the king finds one that he likes. Again, shocking. Each night, the king is bent on his own devices, bound by his own pride and ego to have a different woman who would bring him a gift. That's another part of what this harem was to do. In addition to coming with your own body, being offered to this evil plot, you had to bring a gift with you. The lesson there being you're going to submit in every possible way to his lusts. And after the night, she would be sent away to another house under the care of the other attendant and would live out again unless she pleased the king, live out her life. Never marrying, never having children. We're told that this beautification period lasted for a year. And then in verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. And then it goes on to tell us that Esther was winning favor. The whole time it appears that, and again, we're not told her motives, we're simply told that she is being submissive to, to this situation. And Mordecai is guiding her some. And we see that she is rising in, first in Haggai's sight and then in the king's sight. An orphan. No parents alive. Being raised by a cousin. Rising in power. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women 
and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This Jewish orphan raised to the level of queen of the Persian Empire. Again, we're meant to see the horrible nature of this evil plot, but we're also meant to see the hand of God at work. See his providence at work. There are several applications we need to explore, but the first and most obvious is God is at work despite evil. This evil king doing evil things and exploiting women, how are we to view that? We must remember that the story continues to happen all over the world and in our city, in our neighborhoods. How can God ever build his kingdom with that kind of wickedness going on? The answer in Esther is God is going to use the wickedness of men and, and bend all things for his good purposes. Our text open with this evil plot to kidnap women, and that's exactly what they do. But this plan will, will eventually lead to a holocaust. This evil plan is marching on. This evil is going to grow. We're going to be introduced to more characters. And eventually, there's going to be an attempt to wipe out all the Jews throughout the empire. To kill them all. That's where this is going. And so we're meant to see that through evil, God is continuing to work. Remember the story of Joseph? I think that's a great one to reflect on here. Was his life great? No, even when he was still a young man, he, he, he may have said a little too much, pushed a little too far. Then what did his brothers do? They throw him in a pit. And they're negotiating on whether or not they should kill him. And then they decide what? They don't kill him. They sell him. They sell him to a slave trader. Do you remember that whole story? And then God uses, through all the, the evil done, God uses that whole thing to eventually rescue the entire, his entire family. Saving not only Egypt from famine, but God's people. And we're given this in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me. This is Joseph to his brothers when everything is finally outed. You meant evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What some meant for evil, God meant for good. What the king here meant for evil, God means for good. The best example we can give is Jesus dying at the hands of sinful men. Was that an evil act? Was the death of Christ an evil act? Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, evil things happen. Bad things happen in our world. When, when we live as exiles, we will see bad things. Bad things will happen out there. Bad things will happen in our homes. Bad things will happen to our family. Evil, unjust things. Leaders will, 
will do awful things. But does all of that mean that God is not at work? No, even the death of Christ, foreordained by God, it says this whole thing was a plan of God. And then the hands of lawless men carried it out. Those two things can exist and do exist side by side. Remember Caiaphas and John 11? Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas hated Jesus. Caiaphas worked and was striving throughout the gospel account to to kill Jesus, eliminate this guy. He hated him, but even through that, listen to the plot that that is coming out of his mouth. Isn't it better, guys, that one person should die for the whole, so the whole nation could live? This, this wicked man spelling out this wicked plot is exactly what Jesus is doing. He died so that we could live. Yes, terrible things happen, but that does not mean that God is not in control. doesn't mean that He's not saving His people. The wicked counselors and wicked king and the sin done against these women is ultimately used to raise Esther to the position of queen. And from that position, we'll see what God does with her. A second clear lesson we have here is that God uses weakness to bring about strength. We move from the halls of power, the halls of the king, down to an apartment building in the city where Mordecai has taken his orphan cousin in to live with him. Yet who is it that will ultimately advance the kingdom of God? It's not the the halls of power. It's not this wicked king. It's the orphan living with her cousin. That's going to shape world history. That's going to save hundreds of thousands of lives. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God delights time and time and time again to to shame the strong by using the weak. The kingdom doesn't come by influential and impressive means. God uses the, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The most shameful death, you could die for a long, long time, was death on a Roman cross. It was a horrible death to die. Yet through the death of Christ, that, even that method of execution has become a, a symbol that unifies, that unites the church and has done for 2,000 years. It's a shameful death. Stripped and nailed to a cross, yet powerful. Because he was crucified to save us. You see the upside down reality of the kingdom of God? 
how he could use something so evil and, and terrible looking to, to rescue sinful people like you and me. If you're here this morning and you find yourself weak and hopeless, Esther is a book for you. Esther reminds us that God's kingdom is coming through weakness and not through strength. Another thing I think we're invited to, to consider is society's obsession with beauty. The king demanded the most beautiful women in all his land be by his side. They worked on this, his concubines worked on this for a year before the king would call them. Our culture isn't much different. Listen, if we're asking the question, how do we process life in exile, process this, our utter obsession with outward appearance and beauty. We have lost our collective minds. We are obsessed with unrealistic requirements of beauty. Do we evaluate others based on outward appearances as primary? If we're doing that, we're viewing our brothers and sisters as the world views them. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. One article I came across says this, quote, the psychological effects of the pursuit of the perfect female body include unhappiness, confusion, misery, insecurity. Women often believe that if only they had perfect looks, their lives would be perfectly happy. They blame their unhappiness then on their bodies, end quote. It's not just this culture. It's not just this evil king. It's us. It's our culture. Remember, child of God, you live life as a pilgrim. Remember how God views people. Remember that you are loved, not just based on appearances. You are fully and completely loved and embraced because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. Listen, if you're here today struggling with these unrealistic requirements of a culture obsessed over beauty, believe the gospel. Believe that you are loved and lovable, not just based on appearances, but based on the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see your deep and abiding value and beauty in light of the gospel? Listen, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Is that based on how you look? On whether you got your makeup right? That you have the right clothes? Absolutely not. You know love like this, that God would send his own son. This is the story of Esther ultimately drives us to Christ where we find that we are utterly loved and utterly cared for. And we will be safe in him for all eternity. Look to Christ to see how valuable you really are. Not evaluating yourself by the beauty standards of this world. Finding your value in Christ alone. Our last application comes to us from our New Testament lesson in 2 Peter 3. What, what are we to do as exiles with a terrible empire? 
horrible, immoral leaders. What are we to do thinking about all these people trafficked all over the world, sex, slavery, and all the rest? What are we to do with that? The Bible again and again and again gives us an answer that there is a reckoning. And this is not the way it's always going to be. We look to God who is faithful. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, it's not going to stay in the dark forever. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. He will come again and he will make all things new. Listen, an evil king is not the end. The righteous one will come. All evil will be exposed. And the heavens and earth remade and renewed. Let's pray. Lord, we long for this kind of justice. We long, Lord, for the exposing of evil in our world. We long for righteousness. Lord, we long for this hope to be experienced and felt by us even this day. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would not be bound by what our culture says is valuable. But Lord, bind us to your truth, to your gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.